Good morning, New Hope. Glad that you are here, and we're going to dive into Genesis in just a second, pick up with our E2E study. If you're new to New Hope, I'll, I'll explain where we're going in just a moment. Um, John, could you do me a favor? Could you hand me that basket right there? A couple details I want to draw your attention to, and especially if you were a little late in getting here. Thanks, John. Um, there is a little initiative going on right now, and it's to gather up these baskets, and um, in the first service, we, we thought actually 50 baskets would cover the church for a couple weeks, but they took them all in the 9 o'clock service. Okay, so, yeah, that's great, right? Um, so, uh, the Stepping Stones Foundation went out to get some more baskets, and there'll be more baskets here next week, but here's the detail on this. Um, it's filled with little children's clothes, and these are for single moms recently have had baby, and they're a part of a, a program here in the Lansing area. We want to come behind them and help them and equip them with diapers and clothing and whatever else is in here that little babies need, okay? So if you would, next week there'll be 50 more of these baskets. They'll be empty. The deal is that you would take a basket, go out and fill it with some of the items and then bring it back and leave it here at the church and we'll make sure it gets into the hands of those single moms who really have a, a need to help their children. Can I give that back to you? Thanks. Appreciate that. Um, another detail is that Rich Bruce left yesterday and led a missions teams to Costa Rica. So I would just want to encourage you to be praying for them. They're working with the Gortmaker family down in Costa Rica this next week. So remember to pray for them. And perhaps you've discovered it's been hard to find a parking spot recently coming in to the 11 o'clock service. Um, I know the 9 o'clock crowd occasionally runs into that too. And there's less parking spaces because there's more people, right? That's a good thing. But with more people means there's more babies and more children. And you can probably guess where this is going. Debbie needs help in children's ministry. We could really use more workers. So if you're looking for a way to plug in or looking for a way to serve and you would like to do that, go to the registration desk after this service and ask them at the children's registration desk how you could plug in. They would love to put you to work and help you find a serving gift in that area. That would be a win. Okay, I'd like to pray with you. I'm going to tell you right up front, um, it's going to be pretty information-based in the beginning here, and you're going to get deep into the story, and then you're going to find application at the end. And here's the reason I tell you this in advance. Uh, Michael's going to come back out and lead us through an old hymn that I think you'll not only love, but you will be reminded again of the truth of the theology that you will sing in that song because the theology of it, the reality of how it fleshes out in your life on a daily basis is really prevalent in this story. You'll see what I mean in just a minute. Let's take a minute and pray together and ask God to be our teacher. Would you do that with me? Father, we do wanna lift up our missions team in Costa Rica. We ask that you would be with them and bless their efforts right now. We ask as these baskets go out that they would really reach into the lives of homes where there's great need. And we ask, Father, for ourselves as we are in this auditorium today and streaming from home and from work and from places around the country that we would be edified as a result of this and that you would equip us. So, God, I'm asking that your Holy Spirit would do what only you can do, cause your word to come alive and apply this to our life. Allow us to see what you want us personally to learn through the midst of this story. We pray for this in the majestic name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said... Amen. Just to catch you up real quick on where we're at. This is Genesis 42 and 41 we were in last week. Joseph, as a young man, was sold as a slave at 17 years of age. Around 1898 B.C., his brothers decide to sell him into the slave trade in Egypt. 
A few years later, he's working in Potiphar's house, and he's accused falsely of rape as a result of that. He's there nine years at that point, and then he's thrown into the dungeon. So he's been a slave for nine years, then he's pitched into a dungeon, and he's in the dungeon for four years where he's tortured. After being in irons and being tortured, he is eventually, they recognize this guy is actually a person of caliber. They elevate him to a position of leadership, and he's second in control of Pharaoh's jail system, specifically over Pharaoh's dungeon. In that system, he spends four years, and then he's freed, and he comes out to Pharaoh's court, interprets a dream, and Pharaoh elevates him to a position of leadership in Egypt. And where we pick it up today in Genesis chapter 42, it's been 22 years since he's seen his family. Taken at 17, you find in chapter 42 that he's 39 years old. Now, back in Canaan, where his family's at, his extended family, many of them obviously don't know that he's been stolen and then sold. They think that he's dead because he was killed by an animal. So back in Canaan, life has gone on. Things have changed. Many things have changed. His great-grandfather, Isaac, has died. Isaac was alive when Joseph was stolen. He was 167 years old. Jacob, his father, was 107 years old. But since then, Isaac has died. Jacob has left. And Jacob and Isaac and the rest of the family came to the conclusion that he'd been killed by a wild animal. They had no idea that his own 10 brothers had sold him off into slavery. And so they kept the secret a treacherous secret of betrayal and how they had turned their own brother into a slave in the auction system. And as I told you, now it's 22 years later and, and back in Egypt, Joseph has a new identity completely. He's got an Egyptian name, he's got an Egyptian wife, he's got Egyptian children, he's got an Egyptian hairstyle, he's got the Egyptian clothing, he's got the jewelry. He even speaks their language fluently. So he's got a completely new identity, and he sits among the mighty in the most powerful ancient world system that the world had come to know. And in that place, he's called the Lord of Pharaoh's house in Genesis 45. But he's also called this in Genesis 45, verse 8, ruler over all the land of Egypt. So even though he lives among them, and even though Egypt is subject to him and Pharaoh has elevated him, he knows that this world that he lives in is not his home because he belongs to God, just like you know that this morning. Say amen if you agree with me on that. This, home is, this world is not your home. It's temporary. It's where God has you for now. But ultimately, you're going to spend eternity in heaven. This world is just a blimp. But Joseph, in this case, he's the vizier for this period of time, his time on earth, He's not only got this new identity, he actually as an individual is supervising Pharaoh's vast holdings, and he's in charge of the royal granaries, which are where all the wealth of Egypt is held at this period of time. As we explained last week, Egypt has had seven years of phenomenal growth. Financially, they've been incredibly blessed because they've had bumper crops. And as we studied last week, one-fifth of the grain that came in was put into the silo system, and Pharaoh stored it away. Joseph, actually, is the one who did it. Stored it away so that it would be there for the time of famine. That's where we pick up where we left off last week. Verse 56 of chapter 41. 
When the famine was spread over all the face of the earth, then Joseph opened all the storehouses of Egypt and sold to the Egyptians, and the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. The people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the earth. I want to press down on that word severe for just a moment, perhaps in your notes when you picked them up this morning coming in, or maybe you downloaded them. You see a couple of Hebrew words there, and this very first word I want you to see is kazak, and it's got a dual meaning to it. And this word severe comes out this way. For one, it has this meaning of binding something or being bound and attached to it in such a way that it will not let go. But the other meaning of kazak that's behind it means in a bad way, it's very, very violent. So it associates itself with something that's harder, that's hottest, that's louder. In the case of this particular word, the way severe is used in that verse, it's both. It's a both and. It's that severe that the famine has laid hold and latched on and it will not let go and it is bad. It is so severe, there's nothing really to actually compare it to. Now add to the severity that you've just learned about it and compound it this way with this reality. Imagine, if you will, that your government holds control over all the nation's food supply. And it's not a free market system like it is in our world. And so the government tells you where you can go and what you can buy and how much you can buy. It's actually socialism in the sense that it all belongs to the government and the government determines who gets to eat and when they get to eat. And the government sets the price for all food. Let's let's put it in context this way. What if in your world you could go back seven years in time and discover that a dozen eggs actually sold for a dollar? You see where I'm going with this. Who would have ever thought that eggs are worth more than crypto? All right. Growing, I know. Soon you're going to be bringing your eggs for the offering here. And so let's just go this way. Who could go back seven years in time and find a dozen eggs for a dollar, maybe a dollar twenty a dozen? And it's not now $8 a dozen, it's $30 a dozen. That's the world they live in. Everything has exploded to the point where no one can afford to really eat unless the government is gracious with them and they're giving up all their holdings and Pharaoh is becoming more and more and more wealthy because he holds all the grain and you've got to turn over the wealth of the nation to Pharaoh if you want just to survive. That had to be some kind of a disaster. Nothing was there that they could compare it to, and life is extremely hard. Let me read to you just a paragraph, just a a glimpse of a famine, a a recording from someone's diary of a famine that took place here, probably in your lifetime if you're more than 10 or 15 years old. This is from the days in Ethiopia, not that long ago. Listen to this. You won't see it on the screen. Across vast areas of the continent, crops have wasted away. Pathetically shriveled, wells are dry, rivers are non-existent. Of the livestock that has survived, they are little more than shells. Many have died long ago. The land has become a desiccated sprawl of dust. Wide-scale starvation, disease, and death are forcing families to wander through wilderness regions in search of food, water, and the hope of relief. It's one thing if you have to look for food for your family. And that alone is a sense of desperation most of us have never known. 
But what if your livelihood is based on agriculture and livestock? And your livestock have nothing to eat also. What are you going to do? You're absolutely desperate to feed your family and to care for your livestock and is absolutely hopeless. And that sets the stage for Joseph's brothers to arrive at the one place in the entire known world at that time to come to where Joseph is. This will be their first venture going down into Egypt. They'll make other ventures. Eventually, Israel will find themselves there for 400 years, which harkens back to Genesis 15. You you remember me explaining that to you probably months ago when we said that God told Abraham this was exactly what was going to happen, Genesis 15, 13. And God said to Abraham, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years, God telling Abraham that hundreds of years in advance. Now zoom out with me for just a minute. Let's, Let's get a satellite view of exactly what's going on here. Consider this reality. The one place in the known world that has food is the very place that God intends to bring about His eternal purposes as He initiates an exodus that's going to take place in 400 years from the time when Joseph's brothers arrive. And during that exodus, He's going to put on a stunning sound and light show like no one has ever seen before. And during that series of events, He will bring forth and establish a nation through which the Savior of the world will be born. Who but the living God of the universe could orchestrate all those pieces of the puzzle and cause them to come together in these moments? That country, that one country with food, Egypt, has food because of God's hand on Joseph. And Egypt has been forewarned so that they could prepare And now starving people are streaming in from all known regions in order to beg or buy for food. So we find in this story that during this same timeline back in Canaan, Joseph's family is still alive, but they are not doing well. They're like everybody else. Canaan has been hit with the exact same famine, and they've been devastated. But they certainly don't know, especially the ten brothers, that Joseph is still alive, and that he's become the second most powerful person in the entire land of Egypt. He's become prime minister. The book of Psalms gives us an insight into why God was doing this, and we get a background into this material by looking at 105 verse 17. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They afflicted his feet with fetters. That's talking about the torture he went through. He himself was laid in irons until the time that His Word came to pass, the Word of the Lord tested him. So God indeed sent Joseph ahead to be a life preserver, specifically to be there to preserve the life of Israel because God's got a bigger plan that He's working, one that they don't all understand, but God is working a plan. So I told you last week this great drama is unfolding, and each week it ratchets up more and more and more drama. Somebody told me after the 9 o'clock service, they said, I don't think I can handle anymore. I said, well, you can read ahead and read the rest of the story. And they said, no, I don't want to spoil it. So, uh, okay, that's all right. Just hang on. Here's what God's going to do. He's going to heal wounds that have festered for years. He's going to bring together a divided family, 
uh, in context, Jacob has a really large family and he has many, many servants and it's very difficult to feed them. So he has to call his sons out and say, you've got to do something about this. Now, certainly the brothers know what the dad knows. They know that there's grain in Egypt, but they don't act on it. So according to Genesis 45, what you're about to see took place during the first two years of the famine. Apparently, they've completely run out of supplies. Go with me to verse 1, chapter 42. Now, Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, and Jacob said to his sons, why are you staring at one another? He said, behold, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us from that place so that we may live and not die. Now, if you bear down just on the phrase, why are you staring at each other, you might think it's like he's saying, are you dimwits? But he's not saying that they're stupid. And he's not saying they're a bunch of dolts. This is kind of a a reality check because they're stuck. Maybe you've had to do this for somebody before in your life, or maybe somebody's done it for you where they had to really rattle your cage and say, are you not paying attention? You've got to do something about this. So that's what Jacob is doing for them. He's saying, we have had no rain for months. Our cisterns are dry. Our animals are dying. There's food in Egypt. If you don't go there, we're going to die. The trip to Egypt is 300 miles at a minimum. It's going to take six weeks to do this round-trip journey. Why do the brothers hesitate? Well, I told you, I know they're not stupid. They're smart guys. Here's why, and I'm speculating with you. This is what I believe is going on. I think they're remembering. They know viscerally that's where they sold their brother into slavery. Who wants to go back and revisit a bad memory? Speculating, but you see if I'm right as we work through this story. Go with me into the next verse, verse 3. Then ten brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt, but Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers. For he said, I am afraid that harm may befall him. So the sons of Israel, if you're new to the Bible, that's Jacob's name. He's got two names, Israel and Jacob. He's called both. So the sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. So Jacob sends everybody down, all of his ten sons, except Benjamin. Benjamin is the eleventh son, and it reveals to us he still has got this issue with huge partiality. Benjamin is one of the two sons of Rachel, his most beloved wife. And she's dead and gone. But you can see the partiality is still there because he's trying to protect Benjamin. It can't be because Benjamin's too young. He's well into his 20s at this point. So Jacob's being kind of a helicopter parent. He wants to protect his last son from Rachel at all cost. He's lost Joseph, and the the loss was too great, too hard to bear. I get that. But what is that communicating to his brothers. Like, he's not expendable, but you guys are, so you go to Egypt. Like, what do you do with that? It's part of the partiality issue going on. So we find in verse 5 that among those that came, it says, among those that came, meaning they're one among many who are coming into Egypt, which tells you that every single day, Joseph is facing hordes of people, a constant parade flowing in, foreigners and Egyptians, all speaking different languages. And as people pour in from other countries, I'm thinking Joseph must have anticipated that his own family was going to show up at some point. How many days would go by? 
Somewhere within the first two years, his family does show up. Now, unlike the Egyptians, the Hebrews, the Egyptians are clean-shaven. Unlike the Egyptians, the Hebrews are very heavily bearded. And they wear long, very specific clothing. It's got a very specific weave pattern to it. And they have a specific diet. And they speak a very specific language. So you can imagine Joseph watching intently as all these people flow through, studying their eyes, listening to their speech patterns, trying to discern each person's identity. But as second ruler in all of Egypt, he certainly doesn't have time to be part of every single grain transaction. Chapter 41, we saw last week that there's food silos in every single major city. Well, Joseph can't be in every single major city, so he has to have people watching out. And along with that, all the foreigners, they have to be thoroughly screened and they have to be very careful because of defensive measures so no nation comes in to steal their food. So some kind of a Department of Homeland Security. So obviously, Joseph has told his Border Patrol agents to be on the lookout for Semitic Hebrews, especially those who are coming in from the land of Canaan. Let's go into the next part because we get great detail now. Verse 6. Now Joseph was ruler over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly. And he said to them, where have you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. I'm thinking that the surroundings of Egypt were absolutely awesome to a bunch of country boys from Canaan. Seeing the splendor of Pharaoh, they'd be just like everybody else with their, their mouths agape and their eyes wide open, looking at the splendor of Pharaoh. But now that last verse said, now comes their turn. They're standing in line, and they find themselves bowing before the prime minister of Egypt, a man with immense authority and incredible wealth, and he controls the world's food supply. And I mean, literally, he holds the power of life and death within his hands. So you can see just how overwhelming this moment is because we're told an immediate response is that they would bow down with their faces to the ground. Now here's a moment to remember, church. The ten sons of Abraham, Levin is back in Canaan. The ten great-grandsons of Abraham, the ten grandsons of Isaac, the ten sons of Jacob, Rubian, Simeon. Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, Gad, Asher, Dan, Naphtali. The future leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel are suddenly pulled from the crowd and they're ushered into the presence of the prime minister of the nation. And their first immediate response is to bow. And without even realizing it, they're fulfilling Joseph's two prophetic dreams when they go all the way down with their faces to the ground. Exactly what he dreamed when he was 17 years of age. I don't know about you, but this is the point where I'm giving Joseph a gold star for restraint. His ability to not reveal who he is in this moment is absolutely amazing. Because many of us would be tempted to do this, bow a little lower, a little lower. He knows who they are. They don't know who he is. 
He could exercise his power over them. How easy would it be to bask in the power of that moment? And some people who read this legitimately wonder, how could they not know? Wait just a minute. He knows them. Yeah, it's been 22 years. How can they not know him? Well, there's several advantages that's going on here, several advantages he has over them. First and foremost, who in their right mind would ever think that the brother they sold at 17 years of age would be elevated to be second in the nation of Egypt? Who would ever go there? Mentally, they would never be prepared to grasp that reality. But here's a couple other things. He's a ruler in Egypt. It's the middle kingdom of the 12th dynasty. Pharaoh Sesotris III is on the throne. They all wear the headdress of the Egyptians if they're in power. So Joseph has the headdress, a little gold band with a little cobra on the front of it. He wears the Egyptian paint on the face. He has the Egyptian jewelry, and he speaks the Egyptian language very, very clearly. I get that. That's going on too. But he's also speaking through a translator. So in their eyes, he is an awesome intimidating leader of that nation. And they're not about to go there to think that that's their brother. But then there's one more detail. There's the aging factor. I told you 22 years have gone by, and I want you to get the context of what you're about to see and watch it unfold. So question, how much have you changed in 22 years? If you're 40, what were you like at 18? 80, what were you like at 58? If you're 22, it doesn't count, okay? So let's just go there with that question. How much does someone change from 17 to 39? Well, at the risk of being the subject of your amusement, I've arranged for some photos, okay? <laughs> you guys are gonna be cruel, I can tell, okay? Here's Mark at age 17. Uh-huh. Okay. Now, don't get distracted by the beautiful blonde in the photo. Here's Mark at 39. Yeah. How is it that she still looks that good and I don't? Okay. And here's Mark at more than 39, right? How much have you changed in 22 years? That's what's going on here. I totally get why they don't recognize him. But since Joseph recognizes them and realizes they don't recognize him, he has to think really, really fast. So from verse 7 alone, you might think he's just being really harsh with them just out of vengeance. But know this, it's part of the disguise. It's part of what he's doing to keep them under this ruse to keep his identity secret. So verse 8 but Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. Joseph remembered the dreams which he had about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. Now, far more is meant by verse 9 than just that, they remember, that he remembered his dreams. It's not just that they popped in his mind and he remembered, Oh, yeah, I had a dream when I was 17. He's not only remembered the dreams, he's remembered the reasons for the dreams. So 20-plus years of dust is being blown off from his memory banks, and he remembers at 17. 
That's right. I had a dream in which my brother's 11 sheafs of grain bowed down before me. I had a dream in which the sun and the moon and the stars bowed down before me, and it's being played out right now in front of my eyes. He knows God has a purpose for him being in this position, and the purpose is to preserve and to be part of God's bigger plan. So we're told in verse 8, Joseph remembered the dreams, which are now being fulfilled in real time. How tempting, church, would it be in that moment to reveal himself, to say, hello, Reuben, how you doing? But he doesn't. He holds it to himself, and he comes up with this accusation play. So the accusation play is to say that they're they're spies. Why is he doing this? He's allowing God to do God's work, and he's not getting in the way. I have a problem with that in my life. I bet you do too. I often pray that God will keep me from getting ahead of God. We pray that as elders here at the church, that we will not get ahead of God. I'm sure, and you don't have to raise your hands, I'm sure if we did a survey of the crowd here today, we would say a pretty good portion of us can identify with that. I have a problem with getting ahead of God. Joseph is not going to get ahead of God. He's allowing God's timing to work here. And so he's bringing about these accusations to allow God to do a work in the lives of these guys. Verse 10. Then they said to him, No, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. Yet he said to them, No, but you have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. Now, it's partially true. It's partially correct. They have come to buy food. And they are not spies. And they are all the sons of one man. But it's that middle statement you should have a problem with. It's that middle statement in which they say, we're all honest men. The Hebrew word there means we are all true men, meaning we are not liars. Um, Yeah, you are. You have told a whopper. You deceived your father and your grandfather and all the extended family. You are liars, which plays right into Joseph's ruse with them. You've come to assess our country so that you can steal our food. Now, that's what he's saying on the outside, but here's what he's thinking on the inside, and this comes out in the story. What's coming out on the inside is this. I really want to know how my dad's doing. What about Benjamin? Where is Benjamin? But that's in the back of his mind because he has to play into the ruse with his brothers comes out this way, verse 13, but they said, your servants are 12 brothers in all the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no longer alive. Wow. That would be a knife through the heart. They all think I'm dead. That's another reason they don't recognize him. They have no idea that he's still alive. Three times within this story, very briefly, Joseph accuses them of being spies, but in reality, what he's doing is he's working them over for information. And in their fear, they blurt out exactly what he wants to know. So while they're trying to talk their way out of this charge, they supply facts they would never have given otherwise. That's a very clever interrogation technique. 
He's using what is not true to draw them out. And later, Jacob is going to rebuke them for giving away that kind of information. As far as they know, Joseph is dead. But disclosing the existence of another brother back in Canaan, that gives Joseph some opportunities to test his brothers in the greatest area of their failure. Keep going with me. Verse 14. Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you will be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you that he may get your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. But if not, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies, meaning you're going to die. That's the death threat. Verse 17, so he put them all together in prison for three days. Now, who knows more about the prison system in Egypt than Joseph? Nobody. Nobody knows more about what it will do to your soul and how it will break you. So he puts them in the very same system that he was trapped in. And I want you to know I'm not looking at this as vengeance. This is not vengeance going on here. Although he might be getting a little joy out of watching them squirm, very possible. The reality is he knows that all 11 brothers have to come to Egypt. Not just because he wants to see Benjamin. But God gave him a very specific dream. Eleven stars bowing down, eleven sheaves of grain bowing down, not ten. So he knows if he's going to be obedient to God's plan and what's going on here, that brother Benjamin, he's got to come as well. Benjamin will have to come because the brothers, all ten who betrayed Joseph, they have to face their sin. And they've got to come to a place of really honest confession, and that will take time. And since the ten insist that they're honest men, he's going to give them an opportunity to prove it. And he says in verse 14, by this, you're going to be tested. So he makes the most severe oath he possibly can. By the life of Pharaoh, I promise you, you will die if you don't bring him back here. Now, if you've gone through what Joseph has gone through to this point, what he's really wondering about is the condition of their heart. He still loves his brothers. He wants to know where is their heart at. So how miserable are those three days? Absolutely filled with fear. Three days in prison wondering whether or not the outcome is going to be that they're going to be executed. You, do you think, church, that maybe they have high blood pressure at this point? I'm guessing so. Are they in Potiphar's prison? Very likely because Potiphar's prison is the very place that Pharaoh's prisoners went, and he is second to Pharaoh. But more significant than all of that, verse 17 says, he put them all together in prison, recognizing this, that's going to really intensify their comprehension of the gravity of the situation. Go with me. Verse 18. Now Joseph said to them on the third day, do this and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined in your prison. But as for the rest of you, go, carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words may be verified, and you will not die. And they did so. 
whether you've been in church for 50 years or you're brand new, this expression, the fear of God, I fear God, actually the way he's using it here is a technical way of saying it. He's not talking about his relationship with God. They don't know anything about that. They don't know that he's a follower of the Lord God of the universe. He's talking about I have a fear of a God who oversees everything and he's trying to bring the God factor into the conversation. So the way he stated it here is a very technical phrase. But very specifically and very deliberately, Joseph has chosen this phrase to bring the God equation into the conversation. And in verse 21, you see that they identify that because after Joseph's expression here, the brothers recognize the hand of God is all over these events. Did you notice that he reduced his original demand from sending one brother to sending all but keeping one? And he says, I'm going to keep one in your place in verse 19, meaning in place of you 10, I'm going to keep just one. The rest of you are going to carry grain for the famine. And they have no idea that he's listening in on the conversation because they don't know that he speaks Hebrew. It's part of his disguise. So we find out he's been speaking all this time through an interpreter. Go with me to the next verse, 21. Then they said to one another, we truly, we are guilty concerning our brother. Remember, they're saying this to each other. They don't know that he understands them. Truly, we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us. Yet we would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. Reuben answered them saying, did I not tell you? Do, do not sin against the boy and you would not listen. Now comes the reckoning for his blood. You need to know that Reuben is part of this also. The, the we here is emphatic. They're owning this. So in verse 21, just bear down with me on this phrase. We saw the distress. And the word distress here in Hebrew is sarah. We saw exactly what he was going through. We saw the tightness. Many people who struggle with anxiety describe that anxiety when it's at its worst is like a tightness around their chest or around their mind. They feel like they're going to explode. That's part of what's being described here mentally, but it's also compounded with the thought of the adversity and the anguish, and we saw what he was going through. So they say emphatically, we are guilty. We saw the distress. We would not listen. The, the relationship between the present mess that they're in and their previous treatment of Joseph is just too obvious. Nobody's called them out on it. All of a sudden, they started confessing this. So we find in chapter 42 and verse 21, they said to one another, truly, we are guilty. Where did that come from? They've been trying to buy grain. It tells you it's right in the forefront of their mind. Each of them is acknowledging their sin and they own it. Just bear with us. They pled for mercy and they were ignored and thrown into prison. Joseph screamed for mercy from the pit in the ground. They could see the terror in his eyes as a 17-year-old and they're saying, we still see his terror. It's in our minds. It's come back to haunt us. After three days of living in prison, they're speaking of their guilt and shame, and their conscience has suddenly come alive. I stress that word sarah for this reason. I told you it was like a tightness. What you're seeing here is an emotional binding, not a physical binding. 
in emotional binding because these chains of guilt are strapped right to them, just like Jacob Marley. Remember that scene in The Christmas Carol? Jacob Marley comes to see Ebenezer Scrooge. He comes through the door, and he's got all the chains dragging from him. He says these chains are too heavy to bear. This is what these guys are talking about here. The distress is so heavy upon them. They're bound up because of their guilt. The the brother's crime is more than two decades old. But it's still really visceral. And they're still wearing the distress. We have an adage in the Western world in which we say, time heals all wounds. That's not true. Time does not heal the wound of guilt. The only thing that takes guilt away is forgiveness. And they haven't received forgiveness. They haven't even confessed to it to anybody who matters. They've only confessed it to themselves. See, the scriptural principle is this. Time does not erase guilt. It rings true here in this story. It rings true in our lives today. Only forgiveness deals with guilt. Now, for believers in Jesus Christ, how grateful are we that we have a God who took away our guilt and shame? Praise God for that. Without Jesus taking your sin, you still have your guilt on you. But God says, I've released you from your guilt. These guys haven't been released. We know that when you do something wrong to someone and you've not gone through the steps to make it right with them, when we don't fully deal with the offense, we become the recipients of the same distress that we cause them. It just kind of haunts us at two in the morning. So this whole experience has brought these 10 men right to the place where this conviction is germinating in their hearts. And then Reuben piles on in verse 22 saying, I told you so. I told you we shouldn't have done this. Which actually informs Joseph because he's just listening in as a spectator. Reuben didn't play a part in this. That's new information for him. You don't have to wonder what Joseph is feeling in this moment when he hears the admission of their guilt. He has to leave their presence so that he can weep. He's crying over all the lost years and all the grief that has brought them. Look with me, verse 23. They did not know, however, that Joseph understood, for there was an interpreter between them. He turned away from them and wept, but when he returned to them and spoke to them, he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Joseph is totally in tune with God's timing here. He still doesn't reveal himself. They've been in the dungeon for three days. He was there for years, and he knows exactly what it will do to a person, and he knows how it will break you. As much as he loves his brothers, he also knows that God is not done working on them. So he keeps Simeon as a hostage. And Moses goes on to write that he bound bound him right before their eyes, and now they really get the message. He is quite serious. So why Simeon? He's just chose the second born, the second oldest brother. And if you go back and read the story again, you'll find that Simeon was the one who was responsible for even suggesting that they sell Joseph into slavery, and he's the one who actually carried out the deal. So he keeps Simeon behind, the one who's most responsible for his slavery, 
And then before he lets them go, and this is the part I wanted you to see. It's going to play in so strong with the hymn that you're about to see. What I want you to see is before they leave in a very clever way, Joseph performs an act of amazing grace, church. Watch. Verse 25. Then Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to restore every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey, and thus it was done for them. If you're new to the Bible, maybe you've been 50 years, you could read past that so fast and not even see exactly what's going on here. Because maybe it's too familiar to you or it's too new and you think maybe putting money in the sack is something they're supposed to do. Put it in context. Joseph knows his family, his extended family back in Canaan, is soon to run out of supplies. He's got to get these guys on the road and get them going. So he makes smaller provisions, kind of like lunch pails. He gives them smaller provisions to carry along the way to feed them, and he provides for them that way. But with their bigger sacks, the big grain sacks that they've strapped to their beast of burden, he takes their money back and he hides it in the grain. It wasn't meant for them to find it. So these larger grain sacks have the money put down inside, and they've got these provisions so that maybe it'll be a while before they're on the road that they actually uncover it. So three things going on here. First of all, he gives them the provisions for the journey. And secondly, he fills the larger grain sacks to take back home to the family. But third, then he restores every man's money into his sack, and it's concealed so they won't find it right away. Next verse. Verse 26, so they loaded their donkeys with grain and departed from there. You really need to slow down and not read too fast on this. Drink in the weight of what this is communicating. Verse 27, as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money, and behold, it was in the mouth of his sack. And he said to his brothers, my money has been returned, and behold, it is even in my sack. And their hearts sank, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? So inadvertently, whether they're several days away or a day away, we don't know. Inadvertently, one of them opens his grain sack to feed his donkey, discovers the money bag, and we find in verse 26, they have an immediate visceral reaction. Their hearts sank, and they turned trembling to one another. I doubt that you're going to remember this Hebrew word from a few months ago when we talked about Isaac and Jacob and Esau, but this word charad, it's describing something that is truly very visceral, and it means physically to shudder with terror. When Isaac learned that Jacob had stolen Esau's birthright, we're told that he visibly began shaking. Medically, you might describe it as an adrenaline rush. That's what's going on here with the brothers. They're looking at one another in absolute horror, and they begin to physically shake. And not only are they consumed with the brunt of their guilt, they see God all over this now. What is it that God is doing to us? What God is doing to them is God is bringing them right to the place where they can deal with the evil that they've done. And that's part of the amazing grace of God that He causes us to recognize when we have sin. Even atheists in this world recognize things are not right, 
There is sin. It is a real thing. It's one of God's gifts to help us feel that sense of guilt, to have to deal with the guilt. So these guys are shaking, trembling, and recognizing that God has done something amazing and not in a good way. There's two components that I want you to carry out the door with you of what you've seen in the story. It's going to take just a minute to sum this up, so bear with me on this. Here's the two components. Shallow, weak repentance. Shallow, weak repentance only leads to something that isn't really reconciliation. It's only a truce. It's it's just temporary. It's fragile. Real repentance actually leads to fruit. That's what God's Word promises. The New Testament is replete with it, and so is the Old Testament. But let me take you to the New Testament. Look with me on the screen at Luke 3.8. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. This is John the Baptist speaking, by the way, and he goes on to the Pharisees and says this. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. He's calling them out because the Pharisees aren't actually living like they say they live. There isn't fruit in their life that represents that they're repentant towards God. Even the Pharisees had to repent, but there's no fruit. Well, Paul went on to speak to this very issue to Christians, Ephesians 5.8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Joseph knew, and more importantly, God knows these guys, they still needed to face the evil that they've committed. But they have to demonstrate that there is real life, genuine change. It does not matter that they're the future leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. It doesn't matter that their great-grandfather is Abraham, that their grandfather is Isaac, that their father is Jacob. Don't try and play the ancestral card, John the Baptist says. It's about you and your relationship with God. Is there fruit in your life? Now, that's one component, but here's the second one, and it's the grace aspect. These guys deserve to be on Joseph's hit list. They did not deserve grain. They deserved no money. They deserved the dungeon, and he had the power to put them to death. But they're not on Joseph's hit list. Instead, they wind up with freedom, full sacks of grain, all their money returned to them because Joseph doesn't have a hit list. Church, this is stunning when you consider the wrongs that have been delivered to you in your life, the way that someone in your past may have betrayed you or turned their back on you. And you think of the pain that you've lived with when you've had great, deep hurt. And translate that over to think about what Joseph has gone through for 22 years. He's so gracious. He's willing to go to this length for his brothers because he doesn't have a hit list. How do I know? The reason I know is because of how he named his son Manasseh. We talked about that last week. For God has allowed me 
to forget. That's what Manasseh's name means. So every time he calls Manasseh to dinner, Manasseh, wash up your hands. Manasseh, pick up your room. Oh, yeah. God has allowed me to put my past in my past and the sting of those wounds that are behind me. So Joseph performs this amazing act of grace. If this morning you are in Jesus Christ, you are the recipient of the amazing ultimate act of God's grace. Jesus performed the greatest act of grace that's ever been performed on the cross. Though we haven't earned it, though we deserve death, though we deserve no grain, if you will, though we don't deserve the blessings of God, God doesn't put us on his hit list. He writes our name in the Lamb's book of life. How amazing is our God? How amazing is that God who's worthy of praise and declaring, God, you have given us amazing grace. Perhaps this morning you have never actually encountered this God and how God's grace can restore your life. I want you to know that at the end of the service, I'll be down here in the front. I'll be thrilled to talk with you if you would like to talk about the forgiveness you can find in Jesus Christ and how he can take away all your sins and all your guilt. But for right now, I want to pray with you because the team is about to lead us in that amazing song about what God did for you if you're in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for clarity because you give it through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not anything that we do, but rather you cause your word to come alive. It's in ways we can't even begin to explain, but it resonates with us, Father. So we come before you humbly, thanking you for showing things in our lives that we need to correct, but also how we can speak into the lives of other people. I know, Father, with this many people gathered together, that we certainly know people who don't know anything about you, and they're looking for answers. God, I would ask that this week that you would use us to expand the kingdom for the sake of Jesus Christ. He's worthy of it. And we gladly, without any shame or recoil, recognize that. So thank you for the grace that we have received. Thank you for life in Jesus. Thank you for forgiveness. But also, remind us once again of the responsibility to walk before a world who's looking for the exact same thing that you've given to us. We praise you and we thank you in the matchless name of our soon coming King the Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.